Hello, Dr. Miller. Good morning. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this with me. I, uh, when I reached out to you originally on on email, I didn't really expect that we'd ever uh, be talking, and it's a real it's a real honor for me. Um, I wanted to start off by uh, thanking you for hosting myself, my wife, and a ton of my friends at Wilbur over the years. Uh, we've been going to Wilbur Hot Springs for over a decade, and it's oh, that warms my heart to hear that. It's my favorite hot springs. I really like how it's. It's mediated. It's not kind of like a crazy free for all as Harbin can be. I'm a little more sensitive when I go to a hot springs. I like quiet and nature. Yes, of course. So I spent quite a bit of time riding your free bicycles right past your house, going, "Wow, I wonder who that guy is. He's super awesome for letting me do this." So just wanted to start by saying thank you. Okay, I'll come out and trike with you. I have my trikes at Wilbur. I I do. I will try. Oh, okay, cool. That sounds awesome. Yeah, we're actually uh, we're going to be making a plan to go out there right after Austin. We're going to Austin next week. So, um, I wanted to. Why don't we just start by uh, with 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 that? Um, how did the, your purchase of Wilbur come about? Did you were you living in that area previous to purchasing the hot springs? No, not at all. I was living in San Francisco, and I had um, a clinic, a very successful clinic in San Francisco. Um, I had just finished a year at, uh, at Stanford and uh, opened up a clinic and it was uh, thriving. And um, But prior to that, I had lived at the Esalen Institute. Oh. And while I was there, I got interested in the use of hot mineral water as a healing modality. And I started to study balneology. Yes, sir. The... Uh, and so I studied that, and I and I realized that it could be a very effective healing modality, and particularly since my primary occupation was as a psychotherapist, uh, patients would definitely benefit from that kind of an environment. And I was also influenced by Ronnie Lang's work in, in England, where he talked about the therapeutic community. And the therapeutic community was a community which in and of itself was therapeutic, so that when people came and stayed in the community, therapy was going on by the very fact that they were living in the community and taking advantage of the environment as well as the people. So I was influenced by by that Ronnie Lang's work. And then I was influenced by the hot water at at Wilbur. Uh And so the combination led me to start searching to see if there were any hot springs for sale. Okay. And that was how you, so you didn't grow up in that area either? Oh, no. I grew up in the swamps of Florida and the jungles of Manhattan. Wow. Okay. Okay. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I've been scouring the internet and and I've found your book links and, and the podcast. I 
you know, I, I didn't realize, I think maybe we talked about this. I've actually been listening to you for years on, uh, I believe, KZYX. So we lived up in Mendo, and, and I was listening to yourself and uh, and then Barry Vogel, who's another friend of my uncle, uh, Bruce Brady. I don't know if you've ever met Bruce. He's a poet, and uh, uh, he was a teacher in, at Anderson Valley High School, or uh, no, Laytonville High School. No, I didn't know Brady, but I certainly know Bruce, know, uh, Bruce Vogel. Yeah, Barry Vogel. And Bar- I yeah. mean, Barry Vogel, yeah. thank uh-huh. you. And saw his work, excellent work that he did. And um, he was way ahead of his time. He, he, he was actually doing... He really was. He was doing podcasts and incredibly interesting, and I really liked I liked how he let his guests kind of free roam, but he also had some some really interesting uh, touch points and touch point questions. And and uh, that's one of the things that I've I've uh, kind of absorbed from him, and uh, I would say his mentorship of me watching his show, is um, there's a question I like to ask folks uh, kind of at the beginning. Um, so we can go for that. We can always jump back into Wilbur um, at any time, but... Uh, Thinking back on, on, on your life and the formation of yourself as a person, as a man, who would you say was your first really important mentor in your life, and why could you kind of go into painting us a picture of that? The first name that comes to mind is Herman Hess. Yep. Because when I was a teenager, I read Siddhartha. Yes, sir. And it was the first book in my life that I finished reading, and as soon as I finished it, I read it again, immediately. So it had a big impact on me. And that story of Siddhartha really connected me with my later life and 50 years at Wilbur Hot Springs. Because in a way, living at Wilbur, you driving by my cabin on your bicycles, is sort of like being the man on the boat at the end right. when he ferries he ferries people across yep. and he stays in one place. Yep. And you see the symbolism yes, there of me staying in one place for 50 years and so many people come and I say hello to them and we, we mix energy. Yep, that's beautiful. That's really... So, so that book was, was very... That was quite seminal. Um, from there, I was influenced by, um, by John Paul Sartre and Camus and the French existentialists. Yes, and what I got from them was a lifelong belief, if you will, that only now exists. Yes, sir. And that there is a future, but it's in my mind. And there's a past, but it's in my mind. But in terms of my total reality, it's what's happening here and now. And I embraced that as a teenager, and I live that to this very day. You might, I call myself a card-carrying existentialist. I... I, in other words, for me, Matthew, my entire life is you and this machine that I'm looking at to see you and the room that I'm sitting in and my time with you. This is it. That's beautiful. I don't exist anywhere else. I mean, that is all we I'm really have. With, that's all I really have. I'm not with my family. I'm not with patients. I'm not out in the garden. I'm not taking a bike ride. I am with Matthew. 
right here. And and humble. Thanks for that. And I I, I feel the same way. And I I uh, it's something I've I I strive for and uh, have really have really put into place in my own life. And I think for myself, I, I would guess possibly after your reading, it was probably informed by your psychedelic usage as well. For myself, uh, my my really my grounding in the now has really been influenced by psychedelics and my giving away. You know, a lot of people to bring up another author, uh, Carlos Castaneda. A lot of people say he's a fraud. There's a lot of back and forth, but uh, regardless of the 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 man, the books, especially the first two, really stand on their own. And and his invitation to get rid of one's personal history and the, the stories one tells to oneself about oneself and really the stories one tells to other people's about the formation of oneself really inspired me and, and has uh, helped me to live in the present moment, which I feel allows me to be a better resource to people. So is that, is that kind of the same well, perspective? That's an I, inspirational. That's an inspirational story, Matthew. And, and I agree with you that it really doesn't matter whether Castaneda really went to Mexico or whether he didn't or whether he made it up. What, what matters is the story that he tells yes. and, and, the, and the wisdom that you gleaned and many of us gleaned from reading his stories. Yes, sir. So, so in my late teens, then I was influenced in terms of mentors by, um, by the French existentialists well, then I was in graduate school, college and graduate school, and I was influenced by a lot of, of, of thinkers. Um, and then I had a, um, my first LSD experience, and that was a big teacher for me. What year was that? That was in 1965. Wow. And, um, yes, LSD wasn't made illegal, actually, until 1967. Right. Um, I swallowed 400 heavenly blue morning glory seeds. Oh, following the prescription. Yeah, I followed the prescription in Leary and Alpert's Tibetan Book of the Dead, yep. where they talk about eating the morning glory, heavenly blue and pearly gates. Okay. So I read that, immediately went to the store and bought out every heavenly blue pearly gate seed that I could. Okay. And uh, we, we made a plan, and my friend Alain Pensens and I, uh, along with two guides, our ladies, uh, proceeded to swallow 400 seeds. It was not very easy. And, uh, and I had a huge experience, um, which introduced me to other dimensions. Yes. And so I had the realization experientially that there are other dimensions. Mm -hmm. I also had a very distinct feeling that everything we need to know about how to live is already inside us. Right. And that what we need to do if we want to mine this information is to go and do what I call inner space travel. Yes. And so I've been a devotee of inner space travel, uh, you know, it's a joke in a way. Goes early in my life when I go to parties, which I didn't do too often, but when I did, people say, "Well, what do you do for a living?" And I'd say, "Well, I'm a travel agent, <laughs> and I special I specialize in inner space." Awesome. Inner space travel. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 
<laughs> and have you used psychedelics throughout your your psychotherapy uh, and and your uh, your your therapeutic um, career? Well, I, I mean, not yourself, but have you used them in in conjunction with therapy with with patients? Well, I haven't been allowed to. Gotcha. So you know, it's a it's a tricky issue to uh, understand uh, in this country because you know one isn't allowed to unless you're going to sort of make your whole process your whole practice an underground practice yes sir that makes sense and i chose not to do that i i had an above ground practice so i really couldn't uh, you know participate but what i was able to participate in are the psychedelics that were legal okay so like mdma was legal until it was scheduled in 1985 right. i believe yeah in the 80s and uh ketamine is still legal in in the state of california as you well know i actually have friends who uh, are starting a clinic in grass valley right now oh really Yeah, they're doing a uh, uh ketamine sessions intra intramuscular ketamine injections with a psychotherapist and it's a combination of talk therapy and then the ketamine injections for and right well they ought i'm sorry i was gonna say it's for depression right now because that's what uh insurance will cover but then they're gonna they're looking at expanding that to uh kind of a human optimization uh area as well well we we ought, we ought to connect them with genesee herzberg dr genesee herzberg and dr jason butler who started the sage institute in oakland Okay, and I think they were they were the first in the country to have a ketamine clinic for indigenous people. The Sage Institute. Yeah, I'm writing that down, and I will. I, yeah, I can follow up with with David. I'm guessing, and yourself on the email to to do this. That's right, things. and we'll introduce them. I'm sure they'll share information with your friend. Excellent. And do you work with Maps, uh, the multidisciplinary yes, association for psychedelic um, studies? Sorry, I just want to roll out the acronym. I, I, Sorry. Yeah, no, that's good. The multi it's a lot to say, isn't it? The <laughs> yes. Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Uh, <laughs> I usually take a breath. Uh, as a matter of fact, I I was just uh I was just uh gooing and 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 uh, gooing with with Rick Doblin over an email. Nice. Uh this morning, I oh, guess wow. it was. Uh you know, thanking him profusely because he just wrote a magnificent forward for my forthcoming book, Psychedelic Wisdom. Wow, awesome. And uh, Rick and I have been friends since 1985 when he was still an undergraduate. Okay. And he told me at the time that he was going to go get a PhD. Wow. And uh, he was going to give MDMA to every member of Congress. <laughs> And change the country. Man, we really still need to do that part. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, I'm, I'm big into that. Yeah, Rick Doblin, is, he's he's an amazing gentleman, and they're really pushing. And I, it's really cool to see that so far, every time you apply science and medicine to psychedelics, we find that they're non-toxic and hugely beneficial. And, and it, it really is pointing to the same thing that I'm sure you contacted uh, during your psychedelic usage, the thing that really happened to me, which was, just the freak out over why are these things illegal when all they seem to do is make me love my family more, make me more in in tune and attuned to nature and make me much more thankful uh, uh, for beholding the miracle of my existence. All of those things. Amen. A woman. Yes. Here, awesome. here. So, and oh, I'm sorry. when I, when I, when I wrote my book, uh, 
psychedelic wisdom, it it's about 19 different scientists, doctors, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, in their 70s and 80s, 190, talking about their decades of underground psychedelic experience. Wow. And the one of the consistent themes is what you yourself just said that you experience. Connection with self, connection with family, a feeling of oneness with everybody on the planet, yep. and, a, and a deep connection to nature, yes. which we are, through psychedelics, we experience as not living in nature, but living as part of nature, because we are nothing more or less than another one of nature's creations. Yes. Yes, right? yes, sir. And this comes from these, from these, this is so uh, typical of a psychedelic experience to have the realization that the entire planet is one living, breathing organism that we're part of. Yes. It's not a ball of dirt no. that we live on. Yes. Yeah, I'm right there with you, 100%. Yeah. I remember when I first was doing some of my my more uh, uh, high dose trips I, I did have a freak out because I literally felt like I was in an aquarium and I felt like I was being submerged and I could start to see the fractals and the colors I could actually feel them washing through me as waves and it really scared me until I realized what what exactly what you're saying I realized that perspective of I'm actually feeling the the, 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 the fact that I'm a, a, a I'm a part of this I'm just a I'm a bit of the of the material in this waveform moving and the thing that's Moving inside and out of me is also me, and and uh, the only way the only way through it is to go through it and and to not fight it. And so you know, I've had my my freakout times, I'm sure, but it's really helped me to understand my place in in the universe and and to define my thankfulness as as well. Well, your inner wisdom shone brightly when you realized not to fight it, but to go with it. Uh, yeah, and isn't isn't that an interesting metaphor for our very lives? For all of life, for all of life, and right. And it's to to go a quick aside. It's one of the reasons I still. Um, so I'm in the cannabis industry as well, and and I'm a, a a user of cannabis. And one of the reasons I still do high dose cannabis is because it gives me a lot of the psychedelic experience without taking. When when I if I want to if I do LSD or mushrooms or these other uh, higher level psychedelics, the personalization is taken a, a, away and there's a, a new perspective where I can kind of see everything, which is very calming. And a lot of times I like the high dose cannabis because it gives me those same realizations about being enmeshed in reality and about my finiteness, my 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 mortality. But I stay grounded in myself and my ego in a way that I really find I have to do more work and I find it's actually better for me. It's helping me to forge myself as a better person to sit in these high level cannabis freakouts, if that makes any sense. I just wanted to share that, uh, get that on the record. Well, thank you for sharing that. And please give us some specifics about what you mean by high dose cannabis. Um, so I, I will smoke the, so rosin is the newest form of hash. Um, it's made by mechanical sifting, like making bubble hash, mechanical sifting of the trichomes, the resin glands off the plant. And then they take those and they put them in a very fine filter bag and they press them under very light heat and intense pressure, like a five-ton press. And so the little glassine 
covers of the trichomes, which is the mushroom that has the cannabinoids and terpenes in it, bursts. And so you only get the oils and the alcohol-based terpenes and water-based terpenoids. You get no cellulose. You get nothing extra. And so it's a solvent-free way to make a hash that's 80 to 90 percent, um, 80, 70 to 80 percent THC. And so I'll hit that in a in a bong in a water pipe, and and hit it two or three or four of them uh, over you know an hour or two hour period. And what happens is you get low dose um, visuals. You know you can get the the fractals, the colors, the eidetic visuals, and you get that. The kind of the thing that that happens at the beginning of a lot of psychedelic trips, where you're you're tuned inward, you can really feel your body. And for me, the first thing that comes up in my head heads up display is like, "Hey, dude, you're mortal. No matter how great this is going, you are gonna die. No matter how many people are surrounding your deathbed, you're going to be alone in that process. And there is no pause button, and you are going to have to Ooh. go through it. And so Ooh. I do a meditation on that almost daily, and I think it makes me a I think it makes me a, a much better person. Well, I, it certainly makes you a stronger and more confident person because you have no fear of dying because you're dealing with it on a daily basis. Oh, no, I still do. I'm still terrified. The funny thing is oh, you are. I do psychedelics and I go to realms beyond death and I meet with beings who are like, give me the handshake and like, hey, St. Germain, you're cool. Don't worry. This is just one step on the way. And, and yet I, I always am, I manage to come back into myself and retain this skepticism and this, and this terror of 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 crossing over the other side and i i think for whatever reason it's just one of those things i'm going to have to walk with for my entire life but i don't turn away from it i just every day i i look at it and i hold its hand i say all right let's let's go for another walk my my own death (laughs) let's let's reason this out again my my tactic is to just lay down on my back close my eyes and let myself die Nice. I just go, okay, that's it. I just, whatever it means to feel like I'm letting myself die, I let myself die. Nice. As a way of dealing with that fear of dying, I just let myself die. <laughs> and so far, every time, I've then come back and I'm still here. One of these days, I'm going to do that and I won't, yes. and that'll be it. Yes, sir. Well, and, and, and really, your, your tactic is, is the one because the moment you surrender to the fact of the process, it usually does then abate and you can get into the, the, the fun part of the meat of the experience. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. For me, that was a lot of mushrooms. When I used to eat the fruit body, it would get me tremendously upset stomach. There's something in the, the fruit body of the mushroom that really doesn't uh, work with me. And now I do teas or extracts. But back then, I, I had to learn that because I'd start feeling my guts go. And then all of a sudden, that would lead to those same messages about my mortality and, and the possibility of getting physically ill. And it was only when I realized, well, shit, I might just be dying right now. Okay, I'm I'm gonna die then, and then it would go away. And I was like, oh, the the whole pain is in the resistance to the moment. And if we don't resist the moment, then the pain disappears. So, how did you conquer that upset stomach business? I know people who have that. Uh, my wife gets that, right. and it's 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 not fun. It's enough to be discouraging about taking the mushroom. Agreed. And what was explained to me by, by my mycologist friend is there's a protein in the mushroom body that's uh, similar to the protein that builds seashells, and and so what I do is what's called lemon tech. So I'll put the mushrooms into a pot, I'll squeeze a few lemons over them, I'll swirl them around for a moment, and then I'll make a tea. I'll I'll boil the tea for about an hour, and then I'll just drain off the mushroom bodies. And then what you have is pure rocket fuel. You drink that tea, you get, pardon me, you get high as a kite in about 10 minutes, which is another thing I like because you don't have enough time to really think about it or fight it. You drink the tea, and that first moment you go, whoa, did I feel that? You go from, whoa, did I feel that, 
just straight down the other side of the roller coaster and it's off. And so I would really suggest my scientist. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I would just say I I would suggest the tea. I would suggest the tea to anyone because I find when I don't eat the fruit body, I don't get the nausea, and I also don't get the the dizziness or vertigo. The only difficulty I have with that tactic, and it sounds like a good one, is that you don't really know what your. How do you know what your dose is? Is it based on the amount, number of the, the the weight of the mushrooms that you put into the tea? Weight of weight of mushrooms in the tea times milliliters of water water used with a slight, uh, and then we remeasure uh, for evaporation. So we get it down okay, to about thanks. 50 50 milliliters is a gram of mushrooms. And then 50 milliliters. Yeah, and then you're off to the okay. races. I did that for uh I did that for New Year's and I I ended up being able to drink about 10 grams of mushrooms. Oh my word. <laughs> it was and the crazy thing that I, I I realized once again is I'm really good at taking high doses of psychedelics and I'm horrible at taking low doses of psychedelics. Like oh, if I take a half a hit of LSD or a hit of LSD, I really will sit in that inter- interregnum threshold the entire time. But if I take four or five or more hits of LSD, then I just I just blast right off, and I'm I'm exactly where I and need to be. And when you say four or five, how many micrograms are we talking about? Uh, four or five, so 125, so four to 600 micrograms at least. Oh boy! Oh, you're a hero! You're a hero! My God! In both the psilocybin and the LSD, the, those are heroic doses. The weird thing is, it's just easier for me to get that high. And I know that sound, that uh-huh. might just sound weird, but uh, I guess it just makes it easier for me to decouple my ego or just kind of like relax the whole thing out. So. Well, you're an inner space traveler for sure. Yeah. Now, I want to mention something about this. Yes, sir. I interviewed this one uh, fellow. Uh, Christian Bosch, uh, who took, uh, he's got a book out on psychedelics and uh, on his experience. He took high dose LSD 93 times. And every one of the uh, experiences was 500 mics or more. What he reports accurately because he had a clinical psychologist wife as a guide so that they documented all the 93 experiences. Uh, What he reports is that by taking that high a dose, he went from zero to hyperspace with no in-between. Exactly. So, So he didn't muck around in the ego stuff. Yes. And looking at games or communications or, you know, how I screw up with people or, you know, all the kinds of nitty gritty that I do as a psychologist in those lower levels yes. of, of LSD, right? right? He went right to the cosmos. There was a plus in it in that he got very cosmic, but there's a negative in it in that he skipped so much of that nitty gritty stuff which is really helpful in everyday life. Yes, sir. When we get a good look at it and deal with our interpersonal relations and our way of dealing with the world, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, 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 I still do lower dose LSD, and I find that also for myself, lower doses of MDMA are really good for processing both with other people and, and processing through things myself as well. And so I really. What's a lower dose? What's a lower dose of LSD for you? Just a two hundred and fifty or three hundred? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically, yes. 
Uh, and what's what, what are your dosages of MDMA that you take? Uh, 50 to 200 milligrams, kind of depending. But you go as high as t- you go as high as 200 and as low as 50. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Yes, sir. But I like two two in public in public or party settings. I like the more like 50 to 100 milligrams. And then if it's a small party or just with my wife or myself, then I prefer up to yes. 200 or more. I never do any of these recreationally. By the way, I, I find so when I do psychedelics recreationally i still do the work um i i don't drink and i'm really unable to even if doing it recreationally i still need the first hour plus to do my to do my own work um yeah and i don't do them recreationally in in like going to a movie or going to a bar where people are drinking uh the my only recreational use will be with really tightly curated circles at my house or someone else's house and or burning man and certain festivals that are really good containers and I've been going to these festivals for decades, so I have tens to hundreds of friends that really also know the way and respect everybody's ability to really go for it and offer safe space for everyone. So, so it's kind of like a work oh, that's play. Beautiful. It's almost like a work play, like a like a like taking a convention in Vegas, but for LSD, you know. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um. So when I so uh, do you know uh the Brotherhood? Let's 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 zoom back real quick to 1965, and and you did your your the the Hawaiian baby Woodrose, and you were in San Francisco at that time. Yes. And oh, wait a second! No, wait a second! No. In '65, I was still in in uh, in Michigan. Oh wow! Okay, uh, going to school. Yeah, I took yeah I taught at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Wow. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, and then when did you move out to San Francisco? In 1968. And and was that for uh, additional schooling or job, or did you just want to be closer to what was going on out here? It was that I in the summer of 67, I had lived at the Esalen Institute. Cool. And it was the summer of love. Yeah. It was the summer of the Monterey Jazz Festival. Yes. Uh, with Jimi Hendrix and... Janis Joplin and that whole gang. And um, so I was deeply influenced by being in California and being in Esalen in 1967. And so I I went back and taught the next year at Michigan. And then I took a leave of absence because I was afraid to quit. I didn't (laughs) want to give up my my job and didn't know what I was in store for. But it looked to me like there was more action going on at Esalen yeah. and in San Francisco than at the esteemed University of Michigan. Right. So, and so I came out and opened up a clinic in San Francisco. Wow. And, and moved in, and that was in 1968. Wow, what a that's just amazing. I've been a real student of the psychedelic uh, scene and the free speech movement and the uh, the radical movement in in the Bay Area. And and in California in general, and then the world for for my whole life since reading the Electric Kool Aid Acid Test, it's something I've I've dove into just full strength because of the the experiences that I've had, and then just the power that you can glean from from these tales from these people, and you could really feel it happening. And so one of the things that uh, brought us together was you interviewing Michael Randall of the Brotherhood, and and yes. one of the things that really sparked this resurgence was reading the book orange sunshine and realizing how the brotherhood was 
a huge part of the economic engine behind the entire movement in the 60s, behind the free speech movement, their funding of the Weather Underground, their funding of the Panthers, their funding of the Grateful Dead, um, you know, their attempt to give away and sell millions and millions of, of, of hits of LSD. And uh, so that was something that really got me excited when I saw that you were interviewing Michael Randall because I've always been searching for more and more points of contact. I actually even, from the, have you seen the, the movie Orange Sunshine? Oh, of course. I sponsored it here at the Mendocino Film oh, cool. Festival. So I watched that movie. I cried for probably at least 25 minutes toward the middle end of the movie, just at the beauty, the fact they never told on each other. They didn't use violence. They were all such stand-up individuals, every single person involved in that organization. Um, but then I saw, you know, they talked about the jewelry store, and I literally saw the, 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 the store reflections, and I, and I heard him say something about San Anselmo, so I hunted it down, and I talked to his daughter, and, and I have a plan with a friend, actually, uh, my, my friend Joe, we're going to go down um, these next couple of weekends to the San Francisco flower market, and we're just going to purchase a ridiculous amount of flowers, and we're going to go over to Reflections, and we're going to do a, a flower offering for them, as just as a mean to thanks Michael, Michael and Carol and their family for, for what they did for everyone. Um, they, really, they really put their lives on the line and did something that was important for all of humanity, and really, they almost won if, I think, if... They hadn't have shot those kids at Kent State and and Hoover and and uh, and Dulles and and these folks hadn't have moved to aggressive assassination and incarceration that that we would have actually probably you know won the '60s at that point because we were so close to just ending the war and 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 ushering in more equitable treatment and one of my hopes is that in in folks like yourself and then all of these people I know gaining degrees and gaining a new perspective and, and, and using the, 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 the tools in the organization of science and medicine and government, we can now prove unequivocally through peer-reviewed evidence that these things are wildly beneficial and we still have hope that psychedelics can win and help the human race to kind of unmess itself up from this present moment it finds itself in. Yes, very much so. And by the way, I think we did win in the 1960s. Okay. Um, because I think the Me Too movement came out of that. Yes. I think the Black Lives Matter movement came out of it. Right. The women's movement came out of it. And on and on. A lot of good stuff came out of it. Can you hear me okay? I hear you great. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I agree uh, with that. I, it's almost like... This wave came, and even though the wave break and receded, it didn't recede as far as it had. And now it gives us a chance to even push that wave farther. Exactly. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Exactly. Oh. Oh, no. Okay, you're back. You cut out for one second. Um, okay, yeah. So in, in your talking to Michael Randall, you said something that really sparked me and was the reason I, I reached out to you, which was you're the only person I've ever heard say out loud some some things that were came from my own self naturally due to my LSD experiences when I was very young, which was when you were talking about the Roman Empire changing from a physical centurion-based empire, learning a, a, a nefarious and incredibly deviously intelligent form of social control and instituting the Christian Catholic religion as, as a form of social control. And so that was one of the big reasons that uh, I reached out to you um, uh, and not to, not to go on t too much, I, I know you're the guest here, and I tend to just talk my ass off. I'm sorry about that. But 
Please talk your ass <laughs> off. You're an interesting guy. Thanks. Well, You're an interesting person to listen to. Thanks, sir. So I started taking LSD at the Grateful Dead, and almost immediately I had a message from within myself that this wasn't the place to take it. That And, and not that it, you can't be taken there, but there was a bigger plan. And so I started going home and taking it with just a couple of friends and started having a lot of experiences I could go off for hours on. But what it culminated in is I started going out of my body at my friend's house. I was merging with God, and God was giving me the Jesus download. At the same time, I've, um, my parents were a-religious. They were hippies, and, and I've always been a big skeptic. And so I'm sitting there going like, okay, so I'm merging with God, and he's telling me I'm Jesus, but I'm totally Matthew St. Germain, and I'm not Jesus. So I'm having a psychotic break, and I need to call 911 on myself. And luckily... My friend's mom was a uh, shaman and a user of LSD and, and a good elder, and I was he a- allowed me to call her at 2 in the morning while I was melting down and going out of my body, and she was able to let me know that I was all right and make an appointment to go talk to me and just basically said, you guys, go to the river and don't talk to anybody about this, right? Um, and what that did at the age of 19 was it, it inspired this life mission of finding out, like, what was that and what happened? And what I found through... Visions through subsequent LSD uh, experiences and then um, through finding books and, and academics like John Marco Allegro and uh, Jan Irvin before he kind of went off the right wing deep end. What I what I saw was there was actually the proto-Christians were actually astrotheological mushroom shamans and the Gnostic and proto-Christian churches were actually mushroom churches. And then I started through this 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 historical timeline that began as a lot of supposition but has finally been getting backed up in the last decade or so with a lot of really important work that these proto-Christians were like the the analogy analogy could be like South American curanderos, curanderismo. And and then you had these other churches cropping up that were taking their encoded works because they were seeing the power of these people both healing and their personal power of the way they lived and how that organization was then co-opted by the Roman Empire and used as a tool of social control, uh, pushing sexual suppression on people, pushing um, themselves as the intercessor between nature and God and ourselves so that we could all be controlled. And then through John Trudell, I learned about how they then de-indigenized the Europeans for over 500 years through torture, murder, and destruction of culture, cultural genocide, so that they could turn the Europeans into willing lapdogs and then expand that plan you know, like every like every good corporation, you know, work the model, and once the model works, scale it out to the rest of the world. And so it was just so compelling and exciting for me that you were hitting on this. And so I was just wondering if if there's any reading you can you can recommend about that, or if you would like to share more about um, what you may know about that that historical time when the Roman Catholic Church really became extant. Well, thank you so much for that very astute observation of that one point that I slipped into the interview yes, with Michael Randall about how the uh, the Romans realized at a certain point that going after the hearts and minds was going to be a lot less uh, uh, expensive, yeah. if you will, than having legions in every country, yes. uh, although they had a very clever way of establishing their legions around the world, um, which is they 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 printed uh, gold coins and the soldiers got paid with the gold coins, which they then spent in the country that they were stationed in. But then the people who got the gold coins were taxed by the Roman government, who then took those gold coins back and then paid the soldiers <laughs> with the uh, gold coins. Oh my and it God. Was, it was, 
It was a very smart system. I mean, the Romans, you know, they, they were in, it's arguable, you know, how long they stayed in power, well, until, whether it was until, uh, you know, the end of uh, Constantinople when, when Ahmed took over in about 1400 and something, right? Or whether it was just 800 years, but they went for, a, they had a nice long run. And as you see that I pointed out with Randall, they may still be running in the name of the Roman Catholic Church, exactly. which has hearts and minds and are basically using so many of the same uh, ceremonies that the Romans uh, used yes. uh, 2,000 years ago. Yes. So what we're talking about here is dominance and control. Yes. And we're talking about two different views of humanity. We're talking about one view of humanity, which is you might call radical Darwinism, which is the survival of the very fittest to the detriment of everybody else. Right. It's not just that everybody else falls away. Everybody else are literally down below and are stepped upon uh, in, in the way that Thomas Jefferson said, humankind isn't meant to be ridden upon by someone above them with spurs in their heels. And and yet that is what this view of humanity is about. It's this radical Darwinism. It's about king of the mountain. It basically takes us back to the caves. Yes. Whoever was the strongest guy in the, in, in the cave, he could beat up other people in the local caves. So he became the boss of the caves. And then as that cave group got bigger, it became a little larger tribe and then a town and then a city and then a, a, a county and then eventually a country. And then the country now becomes part of the European Union. It's all, you know, moving up the food chain, but it's still basically about the same thing. King of the hill, I'm going to dominate. Yes, sir. The other view of humanity is the one that you have learned and I have learned. A great deal of our learning has come from psychedelic science, which is teaching us, no, it's not me over you. It's not there's a limited amount and we're going to fight over it. It's you and me. Yes. It's how we're going to collaborate together yes. and how we're going to make it work for everybody on the planet and how we're going to make it work for the whole planet. Yes, sir. Because we're one, we're one big family. Exactly. These are two, right? Yeah, you're, you're, These just, are two yes, you're pulling thoughts out of my mind, and, and it's just beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. So these are two very different views yes. of, of humanity and of world leadership. And I believe that is what the great struggle, or at least one of the great struggles that's going on on the planet today between those two views. We're in it together. How do we make it work together? And survival of the fittest, I'm going to get as much as I can for myself. And, you know, if I have to, if that means I've got to get a yacht to look after my yacht while I'm on my first yacht, then I will do so. Yes. And you're going to pay for it. Yes. When I was taught, I was discussing this with a friend who he was, he was, you know, he was uh, kind of parroting the survival of the fittest and, and, and talking about that. And he's a person of color and, and he was talking about survival of the fittest and also talking about problems for people of color. 
and I and I, I try I propose that to him as a thought experiment of well if we're talking about survival of the fittest then what's happening to you is actually survival of the fittest because those people who got their grips in and got those levers of control before us were if 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 that is our metric if if of fitness then then they are the fittest and they deserve to control us but then what I offered him was survival of the fittest in the way that you're recounting uh, in this dominator culture was really a, a maladaption and a and a and a lie of Darwin's theory, used by the Christian nationalists, a uh, Christian white supremacist religion to basically colonize the earth. You know, it was like survival of the fittest. We're the fittest because we have the best technology, so we get to we get to thrive. But what Darwin said, and I know you know this. You're incredibly intelligent. What Darwin actually said was survival of the fittest, meaning, and and but his definition of the fittest was those that are best able to cooperate in a given environment. And when we when we take that when we pull back a little bit and we see that view, then it becomes in line with the the second view that that you offered, which I think is the view you and I share, which is the the fittest organism is the one that can cooperate and live symbiotically in an environment and help the entire biome to thrive, and therefore will be healthy and and, and will be thriving. And when I kind of presented that to him, I think it was it allowed him to kind of see like, oh yeah, that that makes more sense. And it's it's all fun to say survival of the fittest, especially when you're a, you know, teen, twenty year old, younger, middle aged man who's who's healthy and and who's intelligent and able to lift a bunch of weight. But I've been a a manager and a leader in a lot of different ways. I've been a martial arts teacher. I've done a lot of things. And and what I found in being a leader is it's not about just being a dominant alpha male and yelling at people to do what you want. It's about creating a family. And, and finding how to interface and help other people to really reach their potential so that the group can be as fit as possible. Exactly. And that's one of the main reasons for exactly. this podcast is, is getting those messages out there because I think we're at a time right now where, where we need to be broadcasting that message urgently. You know, it's, it's an emergency level to just say, hey, people, wake up. Where were you born? I was born, born on Earth. Were you born on Earth, Dr. Miller? As far as I know, so we're 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 cousins, born. like we're family, and that means everybody else Definitely. you see is family. Absolutely. And so we really need to begin treating our family, family equitably, and beginning sharing the fruits of our labor and our generativity with our family. So that's a big reason I'm doing this um, podcast. Oh, did I lose you? Oh, are you there? Yep, Matthew? you're back. You're back. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Little transmission. Where are you uh, transmitting from? I am in Santa Rosa, California. Oh, well, you're right nearby. I'm just up the road a piece in Fort Bragg. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I used to live up in up in Willits back in the early 2000s. That's when I would listen to yeah, you on KZYX. That's right. Well, when my wife Jolie and I are not living at Wilbur Hot Springs, we live here in Fort Bragg. Awesome. So when you're in the neighborhood, give a jingle and come over and uh, put your feet up with us. Please. I would I would be incredibly honored. That would be that would be amazing. Um, oh, that would be quite lovely, Matthew. Be, put it on your agenda for sure. I will. I will. I will. Be careful because I will follow through and I will show up. I'll... Hello. Oh, no, he's here. <laughs> well, call first. No, I, I know. Yes, working. sir. Yes, sir. I know. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just messing. Um, I, if you have a little more time, there's a couple things I'd like to just uh, – a couple minor points I'd like to hit. I know we're, we're hitting an hour, but I uh, – you know, as soon as you need to go, you just let me know and I'll, I'll sign off until then. I'll throw some stuff. at I'm you. fine. See, I've okay. gotten used to the podcast since I'm no longer on KZYX National Public Radio, where we had a defined period of time. Like from, I was always from nine to ten. Gotcha. Now that I'm joined you modern guys and I'm doing podcasts, 
We have the largesse to go over. We can. Awesome. I've gone. I went with an interview recently for an hour and forty minutes. Yeah, I really like. I like plus. You know, I like plus an hour and a half for interviews. And one of the biggest issues I've had so far with most of my guests is I just get so excited. We get into talking, and the next thing you know, we look. We're like, oh, that's two and a half hours. All right, let's shut it down, and we'll just have to do another one. Uh, I'm not threatening to do, do, do two and a half hours now, but uh, uh, I wanted to hit back on one of the things here about the conversion of the Catholic Church and just kind of, there's a couple things I'd like to really just highlight um, just for the sake of getting him on the recording, which is as these guys, this 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 is one of those things that just blew me away, right? So when these guys are, are getting the centurions and they're pulling them out, really what they were doing is just reducing their numbers and putting a sweet white collar on them, right? And they were leaving in. Right. They were leaving in the Navy SEALs. They were leaving in the Special Forces and pulling out the army. That's right. That's right. So, the thought of a confessional for someone like yourself or myself, especially living in San Francisco or a bigger city, and you think about a confessional, you go to a church that has a you know a, 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 a polity of of several hundred to a thousand people, twenty or more priests. You don't really think about it so much. But if we go back to Middle Ages Europe and these villages that have 20, 50, 100 people and the priest in that village grew up with everybody, regardless of that separator, he knows every single person by their voice and their voice cadence. And so what you actually have is an intelligence network where every single person comes in uh, pretending to this anonymity and informs on themselves in the entire village. And it really creates this entire intelligence network that eventually was kind of headed by the Jesuits. And I think it's something that people don't even really stop to think about these steps on the formation of what happened in the in the molding of the human psyche through the Roman Catholic Church and 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 what these guys were were doing to us. Um, that being said, I'll kind of leave it at that. I think that the good news for that is it seems like their high watermark has been reached. They are in recession. And I really have doubts that they can ever do what they did to us again. And I think that psychedelics and the plant teachers are attempting their best to help us navigate back to this vision of cooperation and a shared vision of the future. I, I agree with you. I think their day is over. However, they're over still over a billion adherents, yes. and it's going to take quite a bit of time uh, beyond your lifetime and my lifetime yes, before we see the trailing end of that amount of brainwashing over thousands of years. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And and the legacy is is uh, oh my gosh I, I I don't even know how to put into words uh, how distorted our lives have become by being brainwashed into uh, basically cult thinking yep uh, having nothing to do with science whatsoever or what you can really measure but having to do with as you well know uh something this side of voodoo if not downright voodoo yes and i think that uh one of the problems that one of the trouble points we're seeing right now with social media and fake news and and all these multiple viewpoints that is going on not that there aren't multiple viewpoints and multiple reality tunnels i think there are but at the same time you see these people who are taught to bifurcate their 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 brain or their mentality at a very early age and they've created this compartment within them that is it was created so early that it's resistance to logic and it's kind of like an a logical underpinning to everything else they think and i think it's one of the things that's pushing that QAnon movement and that pushes the more malignant aspects of new age spirituality is that so many people through catholicism and then the subcults that were birthed out of catholicism have been taught how to create a logic proof container at the base of their being that they then identify with one of our biggest struggles as 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 a 
as a species, I think, is to find a way to help deprogram and integrate those two parts of someone's mentality. And I know psychedelics can do it with therapy. Are there other modalities of therapy or, or, or um, either books or resources you could point to to help people to really bring their minds to wholeness or to help other people who experience this type of mental bifurcation to bring them to a more mental wholeness? You know, th this is a really outstanding point, that, uh, another outstanding point that you're making, Matthew. And I don't know that we can uh, deprogram uh, the number of people on the planet who have been so thoroughly uh, brainwashed that, uh, that they defy. Uh, we got interrupted. So I was saying, I was saying that I, I don't know if we can deprogram billions of people who have been so thoroughly indoctrinated to believe blindly without looking at what's in front of them, which we call science, but they're going to stay with that indoctrinated belief system. I think perhaps what we're going to have to do in our lifetime, it's going to be a big deal. In Earth time, it'll be a nanosecond, is we have to wait until those people die off and until newer generations come up with a whole new spirit of what liberty and freedom and the pursuit of happiness really means in terms of the reality in front of you rather than a reality that somebody taught you to believe in that you signed on for and gave up your whole way of life for. Yes, sir. Unfortunately, I think you're right. <laughs> I always I, I, I live in such an optimistic space that a lot of times I start dreaming up that it can change in one day, but I think it's going to change at a geological or glacial scale. I agree with you on that. Well, when I was your age, there still seemed to be enough time to get the changes done while I was still around. But then you gotcha. get up to my age and you start thinking, well, maybe it's going to take Earth time, as I said, <laughs> a nanosecond, a few hundred years will go by, or maybe a thousand, and we'll have a different, hopefully, a different and more collaborative species. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, and Th it's that's why. Oh, go ahead, please. That, that's the reason, by the way, that I don't worry about us extinguishing ourselves on the planet, what they're calling the sixth extinction. Yes. Because. We survive the other five. If we, if we extinguish ourselves again, we'll be back in a few million or a few hundred million years. Yes, sir. And from the Earth's perspective, that'll be two nanoseconds. Correct. Like nothing. Yep. And we'll be back. Yep. To, ha to give it another try. <laughs> and, maybe, and, you know, and, and maybe we get to keep giving it tries until finally we get it right. Yeah. Well, and I right. think I think even when we get it right, we still have uh, infinity to dance around. That's definitely one of the things I keep being uh, confronted with in my higher level psychedelic experiences, just having to swallow the fact that that there is an infinity of existence. You mean you mean sitting in your room and realizing that in terms of the universe, you're a spot that is so tiny that it's way tinier than any piece of sand and on the beach right in front of you and to realize as you and I do that we really could be sitting on somebody's desk 
<laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. That coupled with the fact that even if you get completely enlightened, then you still have infinity left to sweep the floor and, and keep yourself busy. You know, it's uh, exactly. I, you still have to take out the garbage, exactly. and you still. <laughs> yep, I got a lot of hippie friends who are always going for the fifth dimension and and Nirvana and all these things, and I'm always, you know, I'm always trying to explain to him like, yeah, okay, cool, but like, so Nirvana and and then what? Because still infinity, and and so for myself, what what it points to is uh, the Bodhisattva vow of I'd like to just keep getting born a human and and doing what I can to help people out, and I'm not in a in a rush to go anywhere else and. You know, when you come right down to it, I love human beings, I love trees, and I love pizza, and I could pretty much just keep rolling lifetime after lifetime, and, and I could be all right. Well, you'll roll a lot more if you eat less pizza, because <laughs> it'll, cl- it'll clog up your arteries. Uh, <laughs> true, very true. But, uh, um, but uh, in terms of nirvana, there are... I don't even know the word. I think the word is for the biggest number is a Google. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest number beyond a Google is a Googleplex. Yes. Right? Yep. I think there's a Googleplex of sperm that never, ever connected with an egg. Yeah. So they are doomed for non-existence forever. And there's a Google maybe fewer than the sperm of eggs that never received a sperm. Right. And so they never came into existence. Right. However, you and I and the inhabitants of this earth, we were the fastest swimmers in the universe. (laughs) We were the the fastest swimmers. We got there first. We impregnated those eggs. And we became Matthew and Richard. Nice. And that is Nirvana. Wow. The very opportunity to be here. Yes, sir. With its suffering and with its joy, with its pain and with its pleasure, we got a ticket to the show. <laughs> all the rest all the rest of them non existence. Yes. Right? Total yes, non existent non being, if yep. you will. Yep. A Googleplex of sperm, non-being. <laughs> I, I, so, I'm with you on that. Yes, sir. And you just tell your hippie friends, this is Nirvana. That's what Every I try to explain dr- to them. Right? Yes, Every sir. drop of it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Sure. Um, so are you currently still doing uh, d- doing work on addiction, on addiction release? Uh, I'm still working. I'm still in practice, oh, if great. that's what you're asking. Yeah, uh-huh. And, and, of course, I do some work with people who are chemically dependent, but I do other kinds of work as well. You know, after I've been practicing as a psychologist now for 60 years, one goes through different uh, phases of interest, couples okay. work, group therapy work, chemical dependence work, serious cases work, etc. And at this point, and also I do uh, a certain amount of work with people in industry, you know, executives who want to oh. do even better, who want to expand yes. Yes. R- rather than just deal with, you know, garden variety neuroses. And, of course, there's always couples work because anyone who's in a couple living un- under a roof, sharing it with another person, knows there's tons of work to do all the time. Hallelujah. And I don't, know, I don't know if there are couples that it really ever ends. No, I think it's... I, I have a wife. We've been together for 20-plus years, and... 
She's amazing. Oh, congratulations. Thank you so much. We're really lucky that we get along so well, but there's still always, there's always work to do. There's always work to do. So what do you attribute your 20 years of, of a, uh, that's a 20 year marriage in California is like six or seven marriages. So <laughs> yeah. what do you attribute, what do you attribute your success to? Uh, we're, I'd say first off, you know, we're both a rare breed of person and we were both very radically honest with each other from the very beginning. And uh, we've we've con- so radical honesty is one of the things. Radical honesty was the first part. You know, we we set a we set a ground rule, uh, just a grounding, a ground foundation that was different than a lot of people's. You know, a lot of people see what their partner want initially, and then attempt to conform themselves to that vision to be with that person. Yes. And I'm just a real I'm I'm a very self assured, and I was an only child, and so and I'd learned through other relationships. So when when it came time to my wife, I just was honest about everything right from the beginning about who I am and how I am and the ways I think I'm going to be. And, and I think that's really, that foundation has helped. And then both of us have continued to not just do psychedelics, but to do a deep amount of personal work. Um, so I'm a, I do martial arts. I'm a martial arts teacher. Um, I teach some, uh, physical, um, like personal training stuff as well. And I, I just also am a voracious reader and I've been into the stoic philosophers and, and philosophy, all types of philosophy for my entire life. So I'm, I'm examining myself, I'm doing my work, and I'm doing my best to be accountable at all times. And my wife does the same, and then I think that, you know, our MDMA, we do MDMA several times a year together with nobody else around, and that really allows us to bond in and open things up and and talk and jam back and forth. And mostly it's just the fact that we're both willing to do the work and to be, to do the work on ourselves, which makes it easier to come together to do the work together. And and we both realize the, the benefit do you purposefully put aside time on a regular basis for the two of you to process information between you, interpersonal information? Yes, sir. Yes, we do. Yes, You do. We and do. how often do you do that? Well, small windows on the daily, larger windows of, uh, you know, a, a night or a, a, a couple of days every every month or so. And at least, you know, one good long week long or more trip, the two of us together every year. And one of the places we go to uh, to really get into it is Wilbur Hot Springs. Is Wilbur Hot you know, Springs? I, I the first time I came, I was so I, I knew there was no cell service, and and I, maybe it was just where I was in my in my life and the amount of interconnectedness I was doing because of all the business stuff I was doing. But I just remember like the no talking pools freaked me out, right? But then I kind of forgot who I am. Like I'm an only child who grew up in, uh, in the American River Wilderness by myself a lot, and so we got there, and just the absence of communication. And the ability to still myself and go in really helped me to just uh, wipe out a lot of wrinkles, to iron a lot of wrinkles. And then <clears throat> the two of us, in jumping on those bikes and then cruising out in through the nature sanctuary, we're able to spend that time and go out to the wind chime tree and even beyond and just sit down and really talk about it and talk it through. And, and the fact that all of the guests are really tend to stay containerized really allows you that space, uh, allows us that space to really bond in and, and communicate deeply and not play the social game, which I'm good at and it's fun, but but in, in getting to put that social game aside, it allows us to really dive in and get to know each other better. better. Yes, yes. And, and every time we hang special. out, the crazy thing is we're just blown away by how much we like each other and how much we like to hang out still. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a very good thing. Yes, sir. Um, what do you have for breakfast? Uh, so I'm kind of, I might be borderline autistic, 
is what I've been realizing about myself. Uh, because when it comes to meals, I like to have the same regimented meals. I really thrive. And so what I have for breakfast is a half a cup of oatmeal with dried berries. Half a cup of oatmeal. A half a cup of oatmeal with dried berries, chia seeds, pumpkin seeds, uh, a little bit of, of organic milk. A half a cup of oatmeal with dried berries, chia seeds, and berry seeds. And pumpkin seeds for the prostate. And pumpkin seeds for the prostate. Yes, I learned okay, that from the... Okay, that's uh, breakfast. Uh, with a little bit of milk, yep. And then uh, I have that almost every single day. And any day that I have oatmeal to start my day, I am just so excited. I'm over the top. Um, I try to eat really pretty fairly clean with, you know, a little bit of uh, a splurge here and there. But um, I want to recommend three movies to you. Okay. The first one is called Eating to Extinction. And the second one is called Seaspiracy. It's like conspiracy, I've but heard, it's Seaspiracy. Yeah. A bunch of my friends have watched this one. I'm kind of dreading it, but I know I'm going to watch it. And the third one is Winter on Fire. Is that right, darling? Yeah, Winter on Fire. And so I want something in return for these wonderful recommendations. Okay. After you see these movies... I want you to promise to either call me on the phone or email me and give me some comments on the movies. Agreed. I will. Fair enough. Wow, thank you. Yeah. And these look these look like they're pretty much all about how our how our how our dietary habits are impacting the earth currently, yeah? It's all about how our dietary habits are contributing to the extraction philosophy yeah. that is killing our body, the earth. Yes, sir. Because if we are, as you and I agree, all part of this thing, then to dig stuff out is like digging something out of your stomach or out of your leg. And to chop something off is like chopping off a finger of your hand. Yep. And that's what we are doing. We're digging out of ourselves we're extracting the oil from out from ourselves. Yeah. Imagine doing that to your body, no. going into your body and sucking out the oil. <laughs> you wouldn't last long. It wouldn't be good for you. you. No, sir. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what we're doing. And these movies are wonderful, wonderful uh, explorations of how we are doing that with regard to animals and with regard to the uh I mean, it, it's just phenomenal. My wife and I watch these movies, Matthew, and it, it, it literally, as as much as we've already changed our lives, it changed our lives even more. Wow, yeah. Because we will never eat fish again after, after discovering that we are using space-age technology to harvest fish out of the ocean at a rate that is beyond any fish's ability to sustain and still be a fish. Yeah. So that we are we are making fish in the ocean extinct. And by doing that, we are ruining a major source of oxygen because the fish are producing oxygen for us according to the world's greatest oceanographer Sylvia Earle. It's the fish in the ocean that are producing more oxygen even than the rainforest. And I was not aware of that. And I see the look on your face. Yeah. And you weren't aware of it either. No. That's why you, you must see these movies okay. and to understand the depth 
at which we are carving ourselves up oh. and leaving an emaciated corpse of our own being. Yeah, and the planet, you know, the planet will rebound, and it's really, when everybody talks about, you know, they're like, oh, the planet and what we're doing to the planet, it's like, no, no, what we're doing is making it unlivable for us. The planet will actually slough us off and then return to equilibrium and begin populating with life again. Like, the planet's cool. It's right. it's really us, and we need to start realizing right. that we're destroying our life support systems. You know, I'm That's really right. big into Timothy Leary and his smile formula, space, space migration intelligence, life extension squared. And, and and that's his whole that's his whole thing. He got the same message, I think, from the psychedelic experience that a lot of people get, which is, you know, number one, our planet is alive. We're all a family. It's both a spaceship, a home and a mother. And we need to repair and 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 constantly upgrade the life support system so we can even be here at all. If we're interesting that you bring Larry into the conversation at this time, because over the weekend I had a, a, a lovely conversation with a new friend. Um, Eric Gullickson, and he was he, he is doing transcranial neural stimulation, which is a descendant of Timothy Leary's whole concept of IFIF, the International Federation for Internal Freedom. Yeah, where we were going to be able, if you remember Leary from fifty years ago, uh -huh. was already seeing us as having electrodes into our head yep. and we could push buttons on yep. a table and select exactly the emotions that we're going to feel. Right. And now Eric Gullickson is working on a piece of technology to bring us exactly that. Wow. Can you spell his last name for me, please? G-U-L-L-I-C-H-S-E-N. Okay, thank you. I'm going to check that out. Yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Leary and, and for me, uh, the you know the the psychedelic turn in tune in drop out like he was always prescient his his books were amazing uh, psychedelic prayers is something I, I is one of his books I just lo love to death but in my looking at Leary what I really got turned on to and and I'm I'm having trouble with the way Google changed around finding these documents but so there was a, a keynote address to the American Psychological Association he did in the very early 60s where he talked about game theory, and this was way before games people play and game theory becoming an actual uh, venue of psychology. And he, he, he had this talk, and this amazing talk, where he outlined game theory in, in human society to a T. And then seeing, you know, in, in learning about his escape with the Weather Underground, uh, you know, learning that he designed the personality test that's still being used by the military and corporations and prisons to assess people's personality and prisons for, you know, violence and escape risk and then in the army for kind of seeing who's going to uh, follow the trend, follow along, same thing for corporations. And he really, there's this body and breadth of his material that really got lost in the, in the, in the post 67 Leary personality that I think really needs to have a light shined on it because I think he was one of the greatest thinkers of, of the 20th century by far personally. Um, You're absolutely correct that so much of his work in personality theory happened before the whole yes. uh, entrance of psychedelics, and he made a, a major contribution then. It was because of that contribution that he was brought to Harvard. Wow. Okay. Awesome. And did you happen to know the man? I knew Timothy Leary, wow. yes. Wow. I, you know, I, I, I was very fortunate because that summer of love that I was at Esalen in 1967. Everybody came you know, through. I was a young guy, and, and, and all the luminaries were there, wow. so I got to hang out with Alan Watts uh, and with John Lilly and with uh, Abe Maslow, and, you know, all these people were were, were floating around. Wow. Yeah, you so, were in the company of legends. 
Leg absolute and legends. I, I, I yes. mean, because you you moved out subsequently quite quite soon after. I'm guessing that you you were really feeling it. You could feel the import of what you were doing and and the people that you were surrounding yourself with. Oh, we could all feel it. Wow, we could all feel it. I mean, it was a it was a time when you went through a toll bridge, the Bay Bridge from Berkeley over to San Francisco, and it was a toll bridge, and it was not unusual to have the person in front of you pay your toll for you. Yeah, I did that all the time until they made it all fast track. That was my biggest <laughs> bummer about the fast track thing. It was like, I used to love to pay for a couple people behind me and just it just jazzed me. That's, fun. yeah, That's funny when, you mentioned that. In those days, it was a buck. It was easy to do. <laughs> yeah, it's like eight bucks now, but but I think yes, you know that, that, that little behavior really mirrors out. And if we start living our life like that, it's so easy to just give a little for the person behind you in, in most areas. And the more we each do that as individuals, then we create these whipple ra ripple waves. You know, if I'm, if I throw somebody a couple bucks for groceries and a big smile, that next person that, that, that lines up in front of that person is going to feel a better, better vibe and has much more chance of, of encountering a smile from that person and a better aspect of their personality. And, you know, I call that like uh, individual culture jamming. And it's something I try to do on the daily basis before I go out. I really try to, do my work, talk to myself, and I try to go out as a cheerleader for humanity in the world. And one of the biggest things I try to do is wear something goofy and fun, have a smile on my face, and do whatever I can to just kind of comb the ripples around my sphere in a good direction towards unity, towards generativity, hoping that those ripples will influence and, and help other people. It, it is, it's thrilling to sit and listen to you and who you are and what you stand for and how you're living your life. Wow, humble thanks. Thank you so much, doctor. I appreciate you. Wow. <laughs> I don't know what to, I'm not the best with taking comments. I don't, I don't know what to say after that, other than thank you, that's No, I think amazing. that's a wrap. Okay, awesome. <laughs> unless, unless, unless you, I don't see how we can end on a better note than that. That's great for me, and uh, I, I would love to stay in touch. I am going to watch these movies and reach out to you. Um, uh, I would say definitely watch out because I'm totally into being your friend, even at a distance. Um, I, I'm just so thankful for this interview. I really treasure moments where I can stand uh, and talk with people who have contributed so much in, in the way they have lived their lives, in, in what they have done for others, and so I'm just incredibly thankful um, maybe someday we can do another one. Uh, the only thing I find happening right now with the podcast is that I get so excited that I have a, a framework and a notework and I end up bopping all over the place, uh, kind of like a regular conversation. I end up with about a trillion other things left unsaid, which is totally fine. I think we're good for today. Um, I just want to thank you for being here with me. Would you like to, um, roll off any social media, um, the link to your new book if it's out or anything else that you would like folks listening to know? Oh, that's very kind of you, uh, Matthew. Well, my first book is called Psychedelic Medicine, and in it I interview the uh, foremost scientists in the United States who uh, are doing uh, research into ayahuasca, LSD, MDMA, and psilocybin. And so if you want to know what the scientists have to say in honest interviews, that book is for you, Psychedelic Medicine. Awesome. The one that's coming out soon, I told you about Psychedelic Wisdom, that's going to be the interviews with people about their actual experiences, scientists, and so on. Uh, I'm also working on a sex book now 
called Sexual Medicine. We'll save that for another interview. Awesome. Uh, definitely. And um, you, you, you talked about giving back. If people listening want to give, give some money to MAPS. Yes. The Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Rick Doblin has been doing a fantastic job for, what, 35, 40 years now. And every penny you give to MAPS is money well spent for psychedelic research. Agreed. Yes, sir. And so I think that's uh, that's my commercial. And then your podcast is Mind Body Health Politics on Spotify, correct? Mind Body Health Politics, and one of the places uh, that we uh, distributed is on uh, Spotify, and all the interviews are archived uh, on that. Awesome. And uh, you're not threatening to come and visit me, Matthew. You are going to come. Oh, and I visit. am. <laughs> And you're coming with your wife, yes. and we have a beautiful guest room for you. And my wife's sitting right here. Awesome. She knows I'm extending the invitation, <laughs> and we intend you to you will you will come up, and we will break bread together. Yes, please. And and humble thanks. And the good news is, you're gonna love my wife. Everybody loves her. So same here. Everybody can, loves mine. Yeah. If you can tolerate me, then you're in for a real treat. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Dr. Miller. I, 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 I can just go off uh, forever about how humbly thankful I am, and I hope you have a have a terrific day and, and just keep uh, spreading the intelligence and spreading the love. And thank you for your contribution. Awesome. That's a wrap thank there, David. <laughs> thank you so much. I'm going to sign off.